Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear from Trevor Oldham, the founder of Podcasting You and host of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. Trevor has been running Podcasting You, a podcasting booking agency that helps real estate investors guest on podcasts. And after working with hundreds of real estate clients, he shares tips and tricks along with insights from his guests for how to start investing in real estate, grow your real estate business, and how to build credibility and become a go-to expert. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. Today on the show, we have Cody Berman. He is the creator of Fly Defy and co-host of The Fi Show. Cody quit his corporate banking job at 22 to pursue entrepreneurship full-time. He has found success working on many different types of side hustles and creating multiple streams of passive income. Cody, super excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, super excited to be here. And Cody... For our audience out there that's listening for the very first time and they've never heard of you and they're just coming and coming across you, I'd love for you just to walk them through how you got started into the world of real estate investing and sort of what your portfolio looks like today. Sure. I'll do the quick elevator pitch. So I came into real estate from kind of the side hustle passive income avenue. I read the four-hour work week when I was 19 years old. I became obsessed with passive income and side hustles and what Tim Ferriss called muses in that book started a couple of businesses, started to get some passive income through those. And then the pandemic hit. And honestly, I was kind of bored and looking for other investment opportunities. I had interviewed and talked to a bunch of people who had been just crushing it in real estate. And I'm like, why don't I have any properties? Why haven't I really dipped my toes in real estate? So I just kind of went in, you know, whole hog and started looking at properties, started touring properties, acquired that first property in September of 2019 or 2020. It was right before the pandemic, and the rest is history. At this point now, um, me and my fiance own 11 doors together. We have four units. Three of them are three units, and then we have a duplex as well. And for our audience out there that are listening, for these properties, did you house hack, or did you just buy them outright and say, you know, you buy three or four family and rent them all out, or was your strategy more on the line of, you know, living one of the units and then renting out the other two or three remaining? So the initial plan, this is an interesting question, was to house hack. So we actually bought a property down in kind of the eastern border of central Connecticut. And I know we were chatting before, Trevor, we're both Massachusetts guys, so not too far away, but we actually ended up moving down there for a couple of months. The plan when we were looking at the property and we were going to acquire the property was to house hack. Unfortunately, as a serial entrepreneur, and I know you mentioned in my bio, I did quit that corporate banking job when I was 22. And I didn't have that long of a track record with one business. I kind of had my hand in a lot of different pots. And unfortunately, banks don't really like that. So I'm going through the whole lending process. I'm working with traditional lenders, getting the FHA loan for approval and going to put 3.5% down in House Act. And then they come back and they're like, hey, Cody, like some of the things have changed. This is, again, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And they're like, none of your income counts because you haven't reached a two-year seasoning period. I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do now? So the, the long story short, Trevor, I wanted to do house hacking with you know, the 3.5% down, but I ended up going the commercial loan route because there's a lot more of a gray area there. And that's how I bought my first three properties through commercial loans. And for our audience out there that is listening, obviously we're being in Massachusetts, there's different areas in Massachusetts uh, where you can invest in, you know, very expensive for those listening, Boston, you know, getting 10 miles outside of Boston going to be very expensive. And you mentioned that you were investing, you know, right over the border in say Connecticut and down sort of 
picture you're about 30, 40 miles west of Boston and then go a little bit south over in that area. Was there a reason why you sort of, you know, chose those areas compared to more eastern Massachusetts and looking more towards Boston? Yeah, the main reason was, quite frankly, just the price to rent ratios. So I started looking in Worcester, which is like dead center in Massachusetts, for those who don't know. And before I blindly went in and, you know, started looking at properties, I was like, oh, you know, I'll get a triplex for 300K. It's going to rent for 4,500 a month in gross rent, like 1,500 a floor. Perfect. I start to look at these properties and they're like 500,000, 550, 600. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> this is not at all what I was expecting. So a friend of mine, a real estate investor was like, dude, you got to jump the border, start looking at Connecticut and Rhode Island. The price to rents are just so much more attractive. I was like, all right. So my fiance, Lauren and I started looking at properties and the first one we ended up closing on, and you know, this is kind of skipping over you know, 20 or 30 tours and offers that fell through and all this, all this stuff. But the first one we closed on, we bought for 235,000 and now gross rents are 3,400 a month. So way over the 1% rule. Whereas the properties I was looking at in central Massachusetts were, if I was lucky, just barely scraping the 1% rule. So ultimately it was a price to rent play. Oh, and I can definitely agree with that. I know myself, me and my fiance, we're currently renting an apartment and we're looking to do our first house hack. And we're actually looking more in New York where she's from outside of Albany. And that's the sort of same exact thing that we ran into when we're looking at, you know, say, again, people, for those who are listening, not to get too specific, but when you're looking outside of Boston, you know, it just doesn't even make sense looking to purchase a property there. So I can definitely attest to that, you know, the same sort of thing out, out in, you know, Western Mass and and even in New York, which is significantly cheaper to buy the property, like you mentioned, two thirty-five plus you're you know you're now getting thirty-four hundred dollars a month in rent. You know, I think for those listening in the audience, when you are sort of looking into real estate, you know, even if it's not in your general area, you can sort of look outside of that, which sort of sounds a little bit like that you did. Exactly. It wasn't going like crazy far. It wasn't like I was investing in Mississippi or I was going to the Southwest United States. It was like a 45, 50 minute drive, but it was far enough where the prices and the rents were just so different than my, you know, the market that was right next to me, the local market. And let's say there's someone in our audience, you know, I sort of asked this question on my own, but you know, I wanted to go out and, you know, say purchase a multifamily property but dealing with friends and family that their typical philosophy is go out and buy a single family home and they just can't see that sort of, I guess the advantages of buying, you know, a three and four family and being able to live, you know, have a very low monthly mortgage or have no monthly mortgage or even getting paid to live in that sort of space. So as you're going through the process, did you encounter any problems like with that with family, friends, or even your fiance or your girlfriend on your end? So fiance, 100% on board. Family, my mom is super supportive. My brother understands. But I do have some family that are like, what are you doing? You can afford a nice house and you can have the ranch with the four bedrooms and four baths. I'm like, I know, but I'm choosing to do this because now I have a massive gap between my income and expenses. When it comes to friends, a lot of them seem interested in what I'm doing. They'll ask about real estate. They'll ask about the numbers. They'll ask about how they can get started investing. But very few have actually taken action, unfortunately. The reason I'm doing this though, and I know obviously you understand this and probably a large percentage of your listeners is just having that gap when you're young, like I'm 25 right now and I'm literally getting paid $1,200 a month to live where I'm living right now because we're kind of in a house hacky situation where we have this one bed, one bath detached ranch next to, it's part of the same property that I bought, but next to us is a four bed, two bath multifamily apartment and 600 square feet of office space. 
So we rent both of those out. Like, you know, we could go live in the four bed, two bath. It's a lot nicer than the place we live in, but this totally works for us. It's just myself and my fiance, Lauren, we're making money to live here. So I'm happy to sacrifice for you know a couple of years in my twenties. And it, again, it's not like a slum. It's not a bad house, but it's not the beautiful American ranch that everyone's kind of envisioning with, you know, the four beds, the four baths, 5,000 square feet with a huge yard. I just don't need that at this point in my life. Do does everyone agree with me and has everyone been convinced that this is the right move? No, but I know that financially in the end, this is going to drastically reduce my path to financial independence, which I actually reached earlier this year and just wealth building. It's going to allow me to accumulate so much more wealth, so much faster, not having that housing is typically the biggest line item in anyone's budget. Yeah, most certainly. And I, I think that's an excellent overview for our audience. And as you've been going out there, you know, you started off small and now you've grown your portfolio to 11 units. Are there any, you know, looking back, you know, over the last couple of years, are there any, you know, issues that you encountered that you wish you would have known beforehand that you wish to share with our audience or any sort of learning experience you've had as you've gone on to build your portfolio? Oh man, great question. Lots of learning experiences. If you have a weak stomach, I would urge you to not invest in hands-on real estate. If you want to get into real estate, do REITs, do syndications, do things where you're not directly involved, but a lot of learning lessons. So even just this past year, we had like a ton of flooding and you know, you might've been exposed to that a little bit, Trevor, since we're close to each other, same geographical area. And one of our basements flooded, the sump pump failed and I had to like replace a boiler. It was absolute mayhem for a couple of days, but it ended up getting sorted out. And you know, we had to build enough of an emergency fund for that property where it wasn't a big deal. But if you're not ready for that, like that can be a huge hit. I mean, we had spent, we ended up spending like almost nine grand or 10 grand in one weekend, like fixing everything, which is, which is totally scary. No one prepares you for that. Everyone just says, Oh yeah, you know, make sure it hits the 1% rule. You have a property. It's awesome. You're going to you know, be making this monthly cash flow every month and you're going to reach financial independence, but there is a lot of hardships. You got to be ready for those things that come out of left field that you're not hundred percent prepared for. So I guess that's my biggest piece of advice is, you know, prepare for the unexpected. Don't you know, don't feel like, oh, I wasn't ready for this. Know that things are going to happen that are completely out of your control and just, you know, have the money, have the systems in place to, I guess, remedy that when it happens. And obviously when those problems came up, you know, you can never foresee flooding and especially, yeah. needing, especially needing to replace a boiler. But when you first got started, did you have sort of a six or 12 month reserve fund set in place for those emergencies or did you just rip off the bandaid and go at it with no sort of, you know, emergency fund in there? We did have an emergency fund for that first property. I was very deliberate. I did a lot of research and learning upfront, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube, reading blogs, reading books about just everything about buying property. So I knew that I needed to have some kind of a cash reserve. And I also went in with, I was trying to, at least trying to go in with like a contractor's eye. So I'd, you know, walk through a property. Okay. This boiler is going to go. That's seven or eight grand. Okay. This roof is going to need to be replaced in the next three years. That's 15 grand. Okay. This electrical needs to be redone. That's three or four grand. And the more reps we got in, we, again, we toured like probably 15 or 20 or 30 properties before we ended up buying that first property and getting those reps in was really important because then I had a much better gauge of how much money I needed to have in reserves for a specific property. So it definitely varies property to property. And usually I have a pretty good idea of what could go wrong, not in the flooding scenario, but that's where an emergency fund comes in. Um, but yeah, most of the time I'm setting aside cash for the things that I know are going to go like a roof or a boiler or some kind of a system that's outdated. And speaking along those lines, as you, you know, you're getting a monthly income coming in, do you set, you know, set aside 10 or 20% of the income for those capital expenditures? 
as of right now, we have not pulled any of our profits out of our real estate investing business. We have just only used it to reinvest into our own properties and to buy new properties. So we're not taking any kind of a salary right now, which might be atypical from the average real estate investor, but that's just what's worked for us. It makes us feel better that we have this nice cushion and allows us to just redeploy that capital whenever we need to. I think, that's an, I think it's definitely a, a good example of sort of snowballing from that one property and then collecting that cash, eventually getting that another down payment on another property. But you know, let's say looking at in the future, you're looking at three to five years out and you do have these 11 units across a couple of different you know, sort of properties. Are you still looking to continue to buy say three and four family or use that looking to be the investor that takes all those, sells them, consolidates it, and then goes out and buy one 20 unit property? I have been looking at larger unit properties. There just haven't been any great deals that have caught my eye. A lot of them, I know you mentioned earlier, are out in Eastern Massachusetts near the Boston area. And those price to rents just don't make a whole lot of sense. There is not much of a housing inventory right now for those types of units, but I'm absolutely looking for that type of stuff. To say that I am never going to buy a triplex or quadruplex or any smaller unit like that again, I think that's not fair to say. I think if the right deal pops up at the right time for the right price in the right location, I'm all for it. I'm just looking for deals. I don't ha- I'm not like married to one specific type. I'm not married to one specific location. I am just trying to, you know, real estate for me is a, a vehicle to passive income and building wealth and early retirement. Nothing else. It's not like I, you know, I love the look of these three bed, two bath ranch houses and I have to buy those. It's, it's just a vehicle to me. So I'm just doing what makes the most mathematical sense. I think that's an excellent, a really an excellent overview for audience. And, and I want to switch gears a little bit when we're going into, you know, talking towards early retirement. And I think that's something that really stood out to me when I was going out and reading your bio is that you left your corporate banking job at 22. And, and for those listening in the audience, you know, sometimes when someone is trying to retire early, quitting their job may not seem like the best thing for that. <laughs> and I'd love for you just to walk us through sort of your mindset back, back when you were 22 and why you decided to leave that to, you know, go ahead and pursue entrepreneurship full time. So like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I got really obsessed with business building and side hustles when I was 19. So as a sophomore in college, I started a couple companies. Some of them succeeded. Some of them failed. The one that kind of first got the most legs was a disc golf manufacturing company. So I was making money doing that. Started doing freelancing, building websites, writing blog posts, doing podcast editing, all sorts of stuff. So while I was in my corporate job, I was <laughs> while I was working on side hustle stuff while I was at work. Don't recommend doing that if you have a boss that's <laughs> super micromanaging. But I was also working like before work and after work. I was just side hustling my butt off. Like I was working, you know, 15, 16 hours every single day on, you know, sometimes on my real job or my, no, my nine to five, my day job, and then sometimes on these side hustles. So when I quit, it wasn't like, I just quit and I didn't have any other source of income. It wasn't a ton of income, but I was making a thousand to 1200 a month. And I guess this is a perfect segue into you know, keeping your expenses low, especially at the beginning is a really good way to open up your options and kind of design that perfect lifestyle. Because for me, I was only spending about a thousand or $1,200 a month at that time. I was still living like a college kid, still had the same car, still was living in cheap housing, still was buying inexpensive groceries, not going up that much. So my side hustle income and my expenses were essentially the same. So they were like netting zero. So when I quit that corporate job, I'm like, you know what? I am like sustaining myself. I don't have any kind of a buffer. I don't have a gap between my income and my expenses, but I'm, I'm at least at a point where I'm not going to starve. And at that point, I'd also saved up about 50 grand. So my rationale was, okay, I'm spending what's called $1,000 a month for easy math. 
I have 50 grand saved up. Like that's 50 months of entrepreneurial freedom where I can try all these different things. You know, if they fail, that sucks, but at least I have this buffer and I literally, I could, it's like over, it's over four years. That's, you know, 48 months before years. I have a four years and change to kind of just try my hand at entrepreneurship if I kept my expense levels the same. So that's ultimately why I felt confident enough to go out and take that leap. Yeah, I think that's an excellent, you know, Another example for our audience, well, you still wanted to go out and take the leap. You weren't taking it with zero dollars. Yeah. And I know, you know, it's funny to me sometimes when you hear like, you know, burn the bridges, but I think it's also being smart about burning those bridges. And I think you gave a good example of how you were, you burned them, but you also weren't, if you didn't, you lost a couple of freelance clients in the next month, you, you weren't going to be moving back home with mom and dad. That's <laughs> Speaking of burning bridges, just a quick aside. So when I quit that corporate job again, it was only seven months in. So I kind of understand what they were coming from, but Harsh way to say it, I walk into my boss's office like the day or the day after uh, or two days after I quit and he tells me that I was a waste of time and resources. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. Make it, that's probably not the best feeling in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I knew for me, like I had been a part of this community, financial independence, I real estate investing, passive income. I knew that there were people doing this stuff. So, I mean, looking back, it was the best decision I ever made. But in the moment, yeah, that it sucks hearing your boss tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I could definitely imagine that. But you know, hopping into you know the financial independence fire movement, I would say, with your passive income streams, you know, let's say outside of the real estate, which is I'm pretty sure self-explanatory for our audience. You know, you have you have a tenant come in, and the mortgage is a thousand dollars a month, and they pay you twelve hundred dollars a month. You have that two hundred dollars of passive income. But for those in the audience that say that they want to build up a passive income stream to potentially take the money that they make and invest in a real estate into units or just to sort of get ahead. Are there any things that you would recommend, whether that's freelancing, are there any sites or any resources that you could recommend for them? So I think I should just quickly differentiate between passive income and side hustles because something like freelance writing, yes, you can make money, but it's not passive income. You are working, you're trading your time for money in that scenario. So anything like the things I mentioned before that I was doing freelancing, building websites, podcast editing, none of those are passive income, but they allowed me to save up this huge nest egg or this huge emergency fund where I could quit my job. Passive income would be something like, I know you mentioned real estate, but even just investing in like the stock market or investing in some kind of a market, like whether that's, that could be crypto, that could be the stock market, that could be in a small business, something where your capital is working for you. You are not trading your time for money. So an example, a recent example over the past couple of years, I have built up a few online courses. I put a ton of work in upfront and, you know, made them tip top as good as I could possibly make them used audience feedback and did a lot of polling and things like that to make them as good as I possibly could. And now those things essentially run themselves. Whereas I don't have to spend even nearly as much time as I was when I initially built those up. You can do the same thing with a small business. Like if you have a, any side hustle can be scalable. Let me just take a step back. So let's say you have a dog walking business. And my friend Grant gives this example. His friend, I think his name is Matt, had a dog walking business. He was walking dogs. He's doing kind of what I was doing freelancing. He's training his time for money. He ended up hiring like a bunch of his buddies. He built this dog walking company. Now he's kind of sitting at the CEO seat. He still has, he's, it's effectively still the same business, but now it's passive income. He has all these people working under him. He's taking the margin between what the dog owners are paying his dog walkers. And now he has this awesome business. So that's kind of the way I like to differentiate between like passive income and freelancing. I just want people to know that. So, you know, if you're driving for Uber or freelance writing or podcast editing or whatever, that's awesome. And that can definitely add to the bottom line. 
but you want to start to invest in some of these things where your capital is working for you. And that is where passive income is so powerful. Yeah, I think that's another you know excellent example for our audience. And that's sort of similar how I got the start in the company that I now run is back in college, I was freelancing. And then once I graduated college, been freelancing for about two years, brought on a first part-time employee, had them take sort of, you know, share of the work. And then now looking at probably four years later, you know, having a full team of people under me. So for those listening to the, in the audience, freelancing can still get you started. And then you can sort of look at that long-term picture of going out there and building a team. And you sort of make that, like you mentioned with your friends, sort of that margin in between. Exactly. Yeah. It's so powerful once you kind of think about side hustles like that, because oftentimes most people, you know, 99% of people work for their entire life. They're trading their time for money on a linear basis. It's the people who that get ahead who realize that they can spend time, you know, investing in things like real estate or index funds or stocks or crypto. And those are the people that get ahead because now their capital is working for them. So it's like you're, you're almost building your work army. Like it's not just you that's earning money for your net worth anymore. Now you have your money also working alongside you, which is just so powerful, especially when you start to get like huge sums of money, like multiple properties or, you know, $100,000 in your brokerage account. Yeah, I think that's another really good example. And, and let's say that someone is in our audience, you know, and obviously this is a prevalent problem in America and it's coming out of school with student debt. And I'm not sure exactly what the average is in America at the moment, but let's say hypothetically it's 35,000. Would you recommend that before someone goes out and invests in real estate that they, you know, let's say pay that off, pay that half down or make the, let's say two or $300 monthly payments and then take the additional money that they have still saved and then put that aside to invest in real estate? So Number one, I would say to make sure that your student loans are at the lowest rates possible. So there are some really good sites that do this. I know there's like Earnest, Incredible, and SoFi. If you can get your student loans down to like a three or 4% rate, I would absolutely say go and invest that money. Like invest any extra money, you know, obviously make your minimum payments. I'm not saying don't pay your student loans, make the minimum payments, but then start to invest, like start to invest in stocks, invest in real estate, because, you know, oftentimes you're going to be making greater than a three or 4% return. Hopefully, you know, over the past hundred years, the stock market has returned about 8%, seven or 8% with compound interest and, you know, taking all that into consideration. So most of the time, like over the long run, it's going to be a wise financial decision to do that. So yeah, I would definitely say, don't wait until you're completely out of debt to invest as long as this is debt. That's like, you know, 4% or below. If you have 25% credit card debt and you have $50,000 of that, my God, take care of that first before you start like throwing money into stocks or real estate. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. And for those listening in the audience, I actually, luckily I paid off my student loans, but I refinanced with Ernest and they gave me a great, I forget exactly what the rate was, but it was between three and four. So definitely <laughs> a lot better than what the, uh, the, I think the federal government was like 7%. And when I saw that, I, I, I refinanced out of that pretty quickly. But for those in, in the audience, there's, you know, if you're paying 7% to the government on a loan, just take it, put it into private. Uh, it'll be a lot better on that end. But, but Cody, I wanted to say, I really enjoyed this interview today. And I just had a couple of quick questions that I wanted to ask you before we end today. Let's do it. Awesome. Do you happen to have a favorite real estate investing or business book that you'd recommend for our audience to check out? All right. Real estate investing or business book. Business book, I'm going to say profit first. I think that's a really good book if you're trying to you know, get your foot, feet wet in entrepreneurship, start businesses, and understand kind of the economics of running a business. So talking about you know, taking you know, your business, the podcasting you, or the dog walker that I talked about, talking about scaling and you know, knowing 
putting the profits first, basically building a company so that you're kind of built around being profitable so that you're not running yourself into the ground years later. I think that's an excellent book for our audience to check out. And then the last question of the day is where can our audience find you? So if you like listening to podcasts like this one, you'll probably enjoy my podcast, The Fi Show, The Financial Independence Show, where we highlight people's journeys to financial independence, those who are just starting, those who are in the middle, and those who have achieved financial independence through all different means and forms, real estate, business, just straight up W2 job and investing and everything in between. So yeah, check me out at The Fi Show. Awesome. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes of today's episode. And Cody, thanks again for hopping on. Thank you, Trevor. This is a ton of fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. For full show notes on today's episode, go to podcastingyou.com. That's podcastingyou.com. If you have feedback from today's episode, feel free to email us at trevor at podcastingyou.com. Thanks for listening.